Hey, it's Chell. And Josh. And welcome, welcome to, to the Unstuck, Unstuck Institute. Institute. Stuck in a day job you hate? Not sure how to start and grow your own business? The Unstuck Institute podcast is all about helping you take your next step on the road to working for yourself. Hey, hey, Unstuckers, Josh here, as joined every week by my co-host, Chell. Say what's up, Chell. What's up, Unstuckers? And welcome to February. Uh, We are back with another rousing episode of the Unstuck Institute. This week, we've got Gene Monteriselli of TappingQ&A.com on uh, the podcast today. And he's going to talk about some self-care tips and tricks on how to get over procrastination and... um, He's got a very interesting story, really resonated with me, as you will hear. <laughs> what do you think, Joe? I thought it was great. I have been to several classes um, back actually when I was in Albuquerque, like doing tapping. So like I'm familiar with it and it does really help kind of bring your level uh, of like anxiety down significantly. So I'm yeah. a fan of it. Yeah. So you may be asking yourself, what's tapping? Let's ask Gene Monteriselli in our interview right now. Welcome, Gene Monteriselli. Thanks so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. So tell our audience a little bit about yourself, where you come from, and you're, you're a podcast host too, so your podcast. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Casper, Wyoming. Um, I was very, very fortunate to have a family that thought that Travel was a really important thing. Um, my father had a lot of family in Chicago. Um, so growing up, spent a huge amount of time traveling to big cities. And um, I love Wyoming. I'm glad I am from Wyoming. Um, and I was really ready to find my way to a big city. So I went to university in, in uh, Washington, D.C. And so the East Coast has been my home since 1992. Um, I originally studied computer science. And right out of college, decided I wanted to do a little service before I got a traditional job. Um, I ended up working for Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture as a computer programmer for a year, and then have been self-employed since 1997. Um, The origin of most of the work, I worked with a buddy of mine where we combined juggling, sketch, comedy, drama, storytelling, traveled all over the U.S. and Canada, working with high school and middle school kids. When I was in my early... Yeah. So, so we've, we have, I've, I have been paid to perform in all 50 states, five Canadian provinces, um, was Pope John the Paul II's opening act when he was in St. Louis in 2000. Um, yeah. And so in my early thirties, um, social anxiety got to the point where it started to cripple my life. Um, it was something that I'd always experienced, Um, I could stand on stage in front of 8,000 people and it was as easy as breathing and I couldn't answer my own phone. I couldn't get help in a store. Um, I lived in Baltimore at the time I'd get on the shuttle bus at the airport and you would just tell the shuttle bus driver to stop when you got near your car. I couldn't do that. Um, I literally just rode the shuttle bus until someone else said stop. And then with my luggage and props walked however far, however many levels it was to my car, just because I could not speak up. Um, And fears are these things that grow incrementally. 
Um, I'm afraid something is going to go wrong. I have the experience. I remember everything that went wrong in that experience. So I had this little micro dose of proof to that fear. And so people end up being agoraphobic, like things get scarier and scarier and scarier. And eventually they lock themselves away. And so when I was 33, ta- it had gotten to the point where my social anxiety was now impacting other people in a way where I was lying to loved ones um, to cover up the fact that I was struggling. Um, like I would promise to help them, um, oftentimes promising to follow up and make phone calls with connections I had and wouldn't do it. Um, and was lying to them. And so now they were falling behind on their goals because they were dependent on me. It was one thing for me to like, I had made my life smaller and manageable and that was fine. The instant I started hurting other people, that's when it became too much. And I found my way to this wacky thing called tapping. Um, which is an acupressure modality that is super, super powerful. Um, six months later, my social, ang- or six weeks later, my social anxiety was done. Uh, I did the thing that was the scariest thing I could think of at that point in my life, which was online dating. Where I lived in Baltimore, there were two neighborhoods that were 25 minutes away. I would set up a date and I'd say, hey, at Mount Vernon, I eat and drink anything, pick a place. And I'd literally work the protocol uh, as I walked there for 25 minutes and just and six weeks later, social anxiety was gone. Now, as a well-formed practitioner today, I would not recommend someone to do what I did. I got lucky that it worked out okay. <laughs> and so I just kind of dove into it. Um, and I started writing articles that got published in a newsletter and people started emailing me, asking me questions. And I thought, this is interesting, but you know, it's inefficient to be emailing all these people. So I created a blog spot blog about 14 years ago and just started answering questions Uh, about nine months into it. Someone sent me an email saying, do you have any products that I could buy? Six Hmm. months after that, someone emailed me and said, do you do phone sessions? I really like your style. And I'm like, Oh, this isn't just a tool that I like sharing with people. This is actually a business. So March will be the, 12 year anniversary of the podcast around that particular topic. March 3rd will be 12 years. And in the beginning, I just, you know, it was, I was hand coding XML to create RSS feeds. I was (laughs) self-hosting on my server. It was the dark ages. It, It is stunning how, what we had to do to make things happen. But as a technology person, I was drawn to it. And someone who's dyslexic, who loves consuming things by audio, uh, it was great. Like it was a fun way. And so I had played with podcasting for about 18 months where I just created a hobby podcast where I just shared things with friends. So I'm closing in on almost 15 years of podcasting at this point. And so in the beginning, I just just took a bunch of other um, people I really admired in the field of tapping and figured it was, I asked them for interviews, like y'all reach out to me, just knowing that it was a great way to get free training because most of my colleagues were really afraid to market themselves, but they would market me marketing them. And I just, it was just, it was just an experiment uh, to just find a way to do that. And personally and professionally, it's one of the single greatest choices I have ever made as it's just opened my world and opened my opportunities to connect with people. I got to say, Gene, um, listening to your backstory as you just laid it out gave me chills because Mm -hmm. um, 
I feel like you described me except to a greater extent. <laughs> Everything you are except yeah. smaller. So uh -huh. like uh, I come from a background of sketch comedy and improv. I have not opened for the Pope. I have not okay. toured the 50 states, <laughs> but I have done plenty of that. Right? And then, and then uh, feeling comfortable on stage, but getting really uh, starting to feel some crippling social anxiety in smaller yeah. situations. Uh, that. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, just everything you were saying. I'm just like, wait, wait, that's me. Oh, my gosh, that's me. I'm like, and, and, not and, I'm guess and I'm guessing it's because... When you're on stage, you're in control. Like people oh, who yeah. are not people who are not skilled <laughs> on being on stage see this massive audience as like this unwieldy thing. When you have a tool set to be on stage, they're a monolith that you can conduct. Yeah, and that is that is a significantly easier thing to handle than one person who's directly across from you who is a total mystery who could make any choice at all. Even an audience right. acting badly acts in a predictable way badly, and you had tools to deal with audiences that were acting badly. Daily life's so much scarier. It's true. It's true. Yeah, no, it's something I've been working on. I'm 34 now, so you were talking about when you were 33. Um, yeah. It's something I've been working on for the last couple of years and getting a lot better at, thankfully, before I go down the wrong path, you know? But like, seriously, you're just telling your story, and I'm like, dang, dang, dang. <laughs> So that leads me to, Josh, do you know what tapping is? I don't. So let's talk about tapping because that's not a, a thing I am aware of or use. Yeah, it's, it is, it's gone through a, kind of a number of iterations in the last 40 years. The very, very short version of it. There was um, a psychologist by the name of Dr. Roger Callahan who lived in San Diego, California. He was really interested in the studies that were coming around out around acupuncture that were showing that acupuncture was not only being success, successful for um, physical issues, it was also being very successful with phobias and fears and it was being very successful with depression. And he had a client who had such a severe fear of water, she could not shower. And because mm. he was in San Diego, he had his office in the pool house. And so she had to walk by the pool in order to get to his office to do a session. Oy. And so she walked into the office for a session one time and was really, really disturbed and distressed from the water. And Callahan knew that in Chinese medicine and acupuncture, the point that was directly under your eye was associated with your stomach and was associated with fear in Chinese medicine. And so he just started having the client tap on that point and tap on that point and tap on that point. And 20 minutes later, she went into the backyard and started bathing herself with the water because the fear was gone. And so I went, huh, this is really fascinating. So he created something called thought field therapy, which is lovely, which is awesome, which I use with my clients, which is super complicated. So a number of Roger's students were like, what if we could create something that was really simple? that we could teach the same way every single time. And so Gary Craig produced the most popular version of that called EFT or emotional freedom technique. And Gary in the beginning shared it very, very freely, uh, just wanted the world to tap and wanted them to make better. And so that was the way I, I stumbled myself into it. In the 30 successive years, we now can see tapping as something that is mechanical that if you tap on the prescribed points in a prescribed way, we can measure the drop of cortisol levels in both saliva and in the bloodstream. 
my friend, Dr. Peter Stapleton, who works at Bond University in Western Australia, has been given access to a functional MRI machine. And they're actually starting to be able to show the differences before and after tapping in the neurology, where we're able to provide really amazing transformation with chronic pain, with trauma. There's been some really awesome studies around PTSD uh, with Vietnam vets and being able to clear stuff with them. And basically what happens is the story. So you are afraid in public for some reason. And so there's a story in your subconscious mind which describes why it is dangerous. For me, that particular story was entry was dangerous. I didn't know who I was talking to. I didn't know how they were going to respond. When I was dealing with my social anxiety, it wasn't as much about the conversation. It was the entry. Once I was in a conversation, I was fine because I was getting feedback. I could see their verbal cues. I could hear the tone of their voice. I could manage all of that. And so there was this thing that says, they're going to judge you. You don't belong. So now we know, using tapping in an effective way, the first thing we do is we do something called memory consolidation. We basically take that story that is inaccurate, we open it up in the subconscious mind, and our memories are like a Word document that are in autosave all of the time. That's the reason why memories change over time. It's the reason why we tell fish stories, is because each time I remember the story being great, I add a little information to it. It's the reason why when you think of your first kiss, you might think of it in this really romantic way, when more than likely it was just two really clumsy 12-year-olds who had no idea what they were doing. They were scared to death, but as you retell the story with innocence, you start putting gauzy pink light over the whole thing and the memory changes. And so we have the ability to do that. So the tool allows us to do that. And we know that because tapping down regulates the emotion, basically what it does is it takes the emotional charge of a belief that is unuseful. It takes the emotion out of it. And then we rewrite it when it's in this state. And so all of a sudden you start to recognize that things are not dangerous. Now, it changes things to a proportionate, well-informed response. So I'm sitting here in Brooklyn and... If I did not leave my apartment because there is a lion in the Central Park Zoo, that is a disproportionate emotional response. But I'm not going to tap myself to the point where I climb into the cage with the lion. So it, it doesn't Good. create a spot where we create <laughs> delusions in the other direction. And that it's it. It creates a proportionate, well-informed emotional response. It's proportionate, well-informed if I cry, if a loved one dies. It is proportionate and well-informed if, you know, you and your sketch comedy career, you're here at UCB in New York, and the folks from, the, from Saturday Night Live are there for a showcase. It makes sense that you're going to have some nerves around something like that because the stakes are really, really high. But there's a difference between that nervous energy before you perform and being afraid of something. So that's the difference between a disproportionate and a proportionate emotional response. And so, and it's mechanical. Like it, it, it's, it's like, I don't have to believe an aspirin is going to numb the pain. Taking the aspirin numbs the pain. Belief is helpful in that transformation, but it's something that is mechanical. Tapping is the exact same thing. Tapping on the points is a mechanical process. Whether or not you believe it, it is going to reduce cortisol. It is going to change the biochemistry of the emotion that you're feeling in the moment. So you can respond in a different way. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I guess I've done some tapping, although it wasn't called tapping in uh, in a therapy session once, mm -hmm. but it's exactly that. It was a specific point of the body and just tapping away at it. And mm -hmm. um, and they, they had me like, you know, 
talk to myself while doing it. So, Absolutely. Yep. Right? And so you're that, and so it's, that's the memory consolidation piece. So, you know, as you're tapping, you're down regulating the emotion. And then the converse, I'm sure you're bringing truths about whatever experience was. It was yeah. dangerous then. I am safe now. This is the thing that was said to me that is untrue. And so that's exactly what you were doing in that particular process. Yeah. So for those of you out there who are uh, like me um, and very skeptical of anything that might sound woo-woo, I can tell you I've tried something like this and it totally works. And I'm the and one I, who's like, eh, I don't know. It doesn't sound, <laughs> you know, so I, will, I, have the I same level of skept- been, I have the same level of skepticism. Like yeah. I have things happen to my clients and I'm like, did that really just happen? Like yeah. working with clients for over a decade, it is still unbelievable to me because it seems unreasonable that I should be able to thump on my body and deal with the childhood trauma and heal it. Like that seems unreasonable. <laughs> and <does>. so skepticism <laughs> is natural. And yet it, and yet it works. So yeah. Um, yeah. For the, for the skeptics out there, I would, I would not necessarily uh, write this one off right away and look, look into it some more. So um so tell us as, you know, as our audience is mostly people starting their own businesses and working yeah. for themselves like you've been doing for many a year. Um, so what kind of uh, ways do, you know, you find that business owners get in their own way, self-sabotage and, and yeah. what can what can you offer as advice to help and get through in, in relation to tapping or, or otherwise? Yeah. So in my mind, there, there are four reasons why we don't take action. We don't know what we want. We don't know how to do it. It is painful to take action and it is painful to be successful. And for all four of those, there are practical parts of it and there are emotional parts of it. So I don't know what I want. Some people don't know how to create a goal list. They don't know how to create a business plan. They don't know how to create something step by step. And subconsciously, we're going to prevent ourselves from taking action in a way that we are unconfident in because we don't want to waste time and energy. So it's a way of keeping ourselves safe. So it's a practical thing, like teaching someone how to do a simple goal list, how to do a to-do list, all of a sudden makes it easier for them to take action. But there also could be an emotional component to that particular thing. I had a goal in the past. I invested a lot of time and energy in it. It crashed and burned around me. I got absolutely nothing out of it. So the lesson I learned emotionally from that is having a goal is unsafe. And so Mm. if it is unsafe for me to have a goal, then I'm never going to have a goal. If I never have a goal, then the resistance is going to show up of taking action because I don't want to take energy. I don't want to take action and waste time and energy. So it is keeping me safe. It just is disproportionate and misinformed. Mm -hmm. You know, same Mm -hmm. thing, taking action. Like, I don't know how to do it. I don't do things I don't know how to do because one, I like leaning into my competence and two, I don't want to cause more problems. Emotionally, I might not want to learn something because I hate feeling stupid. Like I've spent enough time feeling stupid in my life. I'm just going to do the things I'm really good at. And I'm not going to send three and a half hours fighting with a piece of software trying to figure it out when I could go do something I know how to do. Uh, It is painful to take action. Sometimes tasks are painful, you know, tarring a roof in August in Miami, Florida at 1.30 in the afternoon is a painful action, not it something that painful, I would want to yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes taking action can be emotionally painful. Uh, I had a client of mine, I don't do this sort of work anymore, but early in my practice, I was a generalist and I was working with a weight loss client and she said, well, no painful to take action. Um, I can identify myself in a certain way. 
you know, that, you know, if I step out, I'm wondering, it's possible that as someone who is an artist, there might have been people in your family that bristled against that particular thing, because that is not our identity. And so stepping into it can be dangerous. And then emotionally being successful, that was the story I was going to tell. I had a client of mine who said, I hear how my friends talk about skinny people. And if I lose weight, they're going to say all of those horrible things to me as well. And so it is something where we're trying to keep ourselves safe from, from moving forward. You know, I, you know, our loved ones want us to, to change as long as they don't have to. And <laughs> oftentimes our transformation makes us renegotiate longstanding relationships, which make it really hard. And so claiming that identity, it's painful to take action or actually becoming that thing, it's painful to be successful, can create all of this emotional strife. And if you're in a circumstance where you already have possibly a tenuous relationship to your family of origin, there's a very primitive part of you that wants you to be a part of the tribe. And so if mm-hmm. I choose this thing that is antithetical to my family, you know, I, you know, I appreciate parents not wanting their children, adult children to be entrepreneurs because it's a treacherous, dangerous thing where there is not a safety net around them. Mm-hmm. And so if you have resistance inside of your family, you know, I will, on a subconscious level, I want to be accepted because that's where safety exists. You know, 7,000 years ago when I was pushed outside of the tribe, I died. And that's not, and I'm not using the word literal in the modern sense of the word. I'm using literal (laughs) in the actual literal definition of the In the literal sense, yeah. The literal (laughs) sense of literal, that you would die. And so Mm -hmm. there's a subconscious part of us that doesn't want us to be rejected and outside of the tribe. And so emotionally, I might sabotage my success as a business owner because I know the people I am closest to because of my history don't think it's a good idea or Mm -hmm. think it's a bad idea or think it is dangerous. You know, so for then for me, practically, the way I think about that is I just kind of tick through all four of those areas, know what I want, know how to do it, take action, be successful and see, are there practical resistances to that thing? Are there emotional resistances to that thing? And start deconstructing those things because you cannot simply think your way out of a subconscious belief that says something is dangerous. If thinking our way out of it was enough, New Year's resolutions would have worked a month and a half ago when we <laughs> created them. Reading inspirational bumper stickers would be enough. Having a poster with a little kitty cat hanging from a branch saying, hang in there, would be enough to motivate us. Right. But just simply knowing what to do and recognizing that it's, it's, it is not based in truth is not enough to overcome it. It's kind of like telling someone to stop being afraid. Like, oh, you don't need to be afraid of that. Like, that never works. Calm down. Yeah. That doesn't work. <laughs> Like we need to be doing something different inside of that. Right. And so, you know, for me then that tapping is the the somatic tool that I use. There's lots of really awesome tools that do this work. I am completely tool set agnostic. But for mm-hmm. me, that's the process is we need to understand, understand what are the practical issues that are creating resistance and what are the emotional issues looking through all four of those lenses, because if I, if I don't have the practical stuff, I'm not going to take action. If there's emotional block, I'm not going to take action. So we need to be dealing with both and as we're navigating that. Yeah. We talk a lot to our, uh, our audience about, um, you know, breaking things down. So if they seem overwhelming, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like what you were talking about. It, it'll seem painful. Like that's a huge task to, I don't want to do all that. But if you can break it down into like, well, this is a huge project, but it's got like a bunch of little tasks, right? That'll mm-hmm. be like one way to kind of think your way through into into leaning into it and, mm-hmm. and it seems more doable. 
Yeah. Well, and, and, and another and another way to uncover that in a really simple way. Once once you've come up with you know, once you've broken things down into a list of tasks and, and you're copying it on your to-do list from day to day to day, there's probably something going on there. And so mm-hmm. the question I like to ask myself is, and I I don't try and intellectually figure it out. I just tune into myself. I'm like, what would go wrong if I actually did this? Yeah. And sometimes I'll even pre-frame the question with, I know I don't know the answer to this question, but if I did and if I were to guess, what would go wrong if I did this thing? And all of a sudden these ideas of failure and judgment and feeling incompetent and feeling judged. I mean, one of the things I deal with a lot because I work with a lot of entrepreneurs is they really believe in their work. And if someone says no to an offer they've made, it feels like a personal affront because I've invested so much in what I'm doing. And so like, they're saying I'm stupid. They're saying I'm not competent. They're saying my work isn't any good. Well, of course you're not going to make offers if you are afraid that the response is going to be, you suck as a human. Right. When what they're really saying is, this isn't a good fit for me right now based on the information I have and the resource state that I'm in. Like it's, it's a practical response. It's not a judgment of who we are. But if we assume that's going to be the case, of course you're not going to throw yourself out there in those circumstances. Your subconscious mind is doing everything it can to keep you safe. It's just, again, disproportionate and misinformed in its response. Yeah. And that's, I, I just finished a, a Dale Carnegie book, how to stop worrying and start living. And that's, that's one of the mm-hmm. big takeaways from that book was, um, was like, if you're worried about something, uh, take, you know, stretch it out in the imagination. What is the worst thing that can happen? Like, yes, I don't want to put out the email blast with the, you know, offer for the sale or whatever. Right. And, and cause you're worried about the rejection. It's like, well, take it out as far as it can go. Like, are, are you going to die because you sent right. out this email? No. Yep. And, then, and then, okay, so what is the worst thing that can happen? Uh, nobody buys. Okay, so if that happens, how do you feel? And then yeah. and then knowing that in advance, like knowing how that's going to feel, uh, makes you go, yeah, but it's not incredibly likely, so I'll just, I'll just do it. <laughs> like the worst thing is not likely. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that's really important as you're tuning into, the goal isn't to be fearless. Right. It just needs to be fearless enough to take the action in the moment of taking the action. So a million years ago, the first project product that I sold of any consequence, I think it was a grand total of $167. It felt like the scariest ask I could ever make of my entire audience. <laughs> and, you know, and, and like, it, it's funny to think about that now. But at the time, that was my money set point around my business. And I can remember sitting in a Starbucks with my laptop computer open. I use Aweber as my email platform. I had Aweber open. I hit send on the email and I slammed my laptop closed and I went for a 90 minute walk because I was certain of all of these horrible emails I was going to get from my audience calling me this greedy blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so I got home, opened my computer back up and a couple of people had bought, a couple of people had unsubscribed and that was it. Like there was mm-hmm. nothing else that happened in that particular thing. And I didn't have to be fearless. I just had to reduce the fear enough to take the action in an authentic way. Because once the emails went out into the world, there was nothing I could do about it at that point. And so yeah. the goal was fearless-ish, you know, fearless enough to take the action. And so even as you're doing, like there are times where I need to be like completely placid and completely in my center to be able to do some actions. Most of the actions aren't that way. They just need to be, I just need to be in a resource state that's good enough for me to do it effectively. And so as people are wrestling with these fears to recognize the fact, you know, you know, um, a friend of mine, her motto is, um, you know, 
scared means do it. You know, and it's just kind of like this, okay, like there's this part of me that's saying I'm a little scared. Okay, that's just me saying, okay, there's stakes here. Therefore, it's probably something I should be doing because it's going to help me move forward. Yeah, well, I think that's like, to me, that's that's how I define bravery. Bravery is being ready to take action despite the fear, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's what we're talking about here, however you want to brand it. It's, um, it's there is fear and that's that's real, but like talk yourself through it, talk your self uh through the possibilities again you're in most situations what you're thinking about you're not going to die and and then and then do it (laughs) i I tap with my clients all the time and no baby seals will die like and just like you know again just bringing it to this place that is super super extreme like okay what you know okay these things aren't going to happen you know and oftentimes just going through a process even before you use cognitive behavior therapy emdr tapping anything else Oftentimes, simply naming the fears and dragging them into the light of day, they become so farcical, they diffuse enough that we can take action anyway. Gary Craig, the the person who created the populist version of tapping initially, used to call them comedies of your mind. That when you drag them into the light of day, they're so silly. Like, oh, God, as I say it out, like, I'm sure you've, as you've like explained a problem to a friend before, you're like, well, as I say it out loud, it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, I'm sitting here all day having those conversations with myself. And if there's resistance, I ask myself that question, what will go wrong if this happened? What's, what's dangerous about this? What's it's afraid of? And I make myself say those fears out loud because it's, you know, it's like being up at three o'clock in the morning, tossing and turning and you wake up the next morning. like, what was I so afraid of that when it's brought into the light of day, Oftentimes, that's the first step in reducing enough to take action. And if not, you've now found out some really interesting information that you go, okay, great. So why do I perceive that emotionally? Maybe not intellectually, but why do I perceive that emotionally as so dangerous, which then gives us the ability to start pulling it apart and looking at it in different ways? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, Gene. Well, we're about at time. So are you ready to answer our three questions? Absolutely. Three questions. What is your bucket list travel destination? Prague has been on my list for a really, really, really long time. Um, It just seems like this magical city that I actually have a group of people that when we are ready and we all have time and space, that's the next place we're going to land. Very cool. Two, if you could choose, what would be your last meal? Um, Ramen noodles from Ichiran. Uh, there is, uh, there is a, uh, it, it's a, it's a, a Japanese chain, um, that now has a couple of locations here in New York city. Uh, it is, and I've gotten a chance to, to visit their restaurants in Japan as well, but it, it is, it's a purely an eating experience where you sit down in a stall, almost like a little study cubby that's in a college library where there are walls on both sides. There's a wall in front of you and there is uh, a one foot high hole that has a curtain in front of it and so when you are served you only hear and see the hands of the server you're completely enclosed and it is just you head down in the most amazing bowl of noodles ever that was just prepared moments before it came to you like it it is it is the the purest distillation of what ramen is supposed to be like where the noodles are only done for a certain number of seconds and you're eating it hot instantaneously and the the space is built so that your entire experience 
is the food that is in front of you. And it is one of my favorites. That's that has awesome. to be the most specific answer we've gotten to that question. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, if, 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 you know, I, like all things, you know, it's, it's easier to accomplish something if you have a plan when you're stepping into it. And so, <laughs> you know, who knows when I'm going to be posed with the question, you've won me a left, you better get it right. I am prepared for this. I have studied for the exam. There you go. That's fair. <laughs> All right. And last, what is your favorite hobby that doesn't make you money? Uh, doing magic tricks. Um, I am a juggler. Uh, I would not consider myself a magician. I can do magic. I, like, I can do a whole bunch of card tricks that you have never seen. Um, the, you know, living in New York through the pandemic, the thing that has improved more than anything else are my pasta making skills and my card mechanics. Um, as I have just sat here, as I've been binge watching all sorts of stuff, just having a deck of cards in my hands over and over again. Um, and I, and, th and the reason I love card tricks is I love people being entertained. It is, it is not as bad. It is very much not a, Hey, look at me. I'm doing this thing. But I, I can remember in ninth grade in drafting class sitting across from Ed Obermuller and he did what I would call the first real card trick. Like we knew a bunch of really simple card tricks from books growing up and you get McDonald's happy meals and like there are lots of little trinkets, but he did the first real card trick that I've ever seen a friend of mine do. And I can still feel the sense of amazement in the middle of my chest. And so uh, all of my jackets, all of my backpacks, all have a deck of cards in them just in case we're ever stuck someplace. I can do 15 or 20 minutes of stuff that's just really cool and amazing that can all be done with a regular deck of cards. And yeah, it's my favorite thing to, to entertain people in that way just because I can. Very cool. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being here, Gene. Tell our audience where people can find you. Easiest way to find me is tappingqna.com. The technique is tapping Q&A question and answer. Um, and if you go to tappingqna.com slash unstuck, I have a two-hour training on how I use tapping for procrastination. There's 30 minutes of training, and then you see me demonstrate the skill with 13 of my clients, so you can actually see it firsthand. It's absolutely free. You can just download it and yeah, get great introduction into tapping, but more importantly, it'll give you something that you can do at the beginning of the day. will make it easier for you to be productive. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Unstuck Institute podcast is brought to you by my very own podcast startup course. Are you ready to make your voice heard? Not sure if your podcast idea will fly? Well, log in to podcaststartupcourse.com slash free course now to take a free mini course on idea validation and find out if your idea will work. That's podcaststartupcourse.com slash free course. The Unstuck Institute podcast is also brought to you by our awesome new life book. Want to get a handle on your life and where you're going? Lack of productivity keeping you down? Download our free workbook to get clear on where you want to go in life and use the Lifebook system to help keep yourself on track to be more productive in your daily life. Download the Unstuck Institute Lifebook today at www.unstuck.institute slash lifebook. It's time for a recap. There are emotional and practical blocks. Look back to see if there could be anything from your past blocking you. Two, try saying your fear out loud and see if it still sounds as scary as when you said it in your head. Three, try tapping when you're trying to push through emotional or physical blocks when doing something in your business. 
And that's a wrap on episode 110. Website and show notes are at www.unstuck.institute. Remember to follow us on Instagram at unstuck.institute. Go back to episodes one, two, and three to learn more about the Unstuck Institute, Josh, and myself. And if you love our podcasts and would like to help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out the show a ton. Leave us a five-star written review, and you'll be entered in a monthly drawing to win a 30-minute brainstorming coaching sesh with me and Josh. For instructions on how to leave a review, check out our website, unstuck.institute. Talk to you next week when we'll be entering the Unstuck Library to talk about Seth Godin's book, The Practice. No baby seals were harmed in the making of this podcast.